Hello and welcome to WeatherSnap, your weekly weather headlines from the Met Office. I'm Claire Nazir. And I'm Aidan McGiven. And this week's talking points, well, we're talking about snow in November. Too much for some and too little for others. And biting conditions across Scandinavia, blocking weather coming in from the West. More about that and UK rainfall in a mo. And also the impacts of climate change on food production. We go over to Egypt and COP27. Firstly, though, Aidan, November, and we're talking about snow already. Is this unusual? It is fairly unusual what they're experiencing in North America. Not unprecedented, of course. And unusual for Europe with the lack of snow. Uh, So uh, contrast from either side of the Atlantic. So let's talk about the cold wave, first of all, across North America. We did talk about it last week. Um, Alex, just no pressure here, but he did a bit of a masterclass on the cold wave coming down. So and we had um, ex Nicole moving northwards and this sort of he used the word. Oh, I can't remember what it is now, but he used a really long word to describe how it merged into one. I'll I'll come back to me. But yeah, he was very good. So let's just see how you get on with this. So we're talking about the cold wave yet again. So these conditions have been across central and northern areas of North America, certainly the US and southern parts of Canada, for about a week now. And they have reinvigorated. It's a real sort of icy blast coming down from the north and it's extending really quite far south. And with that comes the whole sort of swathe of wintriness. So, Aidan, before we talk about what's actually happening, can you give us sort of like a bigger picture of why it's happening? And I'll give you marks out of five in a minute. So this Arctic blast has come from Canada. It's spread across much of the U.S., For context, the November average maximum temperature for central Montana is around seven degrees Celsius. The average minimum is minus six. So we're used to cold weather here, but these conditions are extreme for this time of year with temperatures in some places below minus 20 by night. And there's now the potential for an historic snow event to unfold. When you say historic, what sort of numbers are we talking about here? How much snow? I mean, when we talk about snow in the UK, we talk about it in terms of centimetres. How does the US describe a volume of snow or a depth of snow? Well, not centimetres. They're talking about several feet. And in some places, they're talking about two or three feet. And in one or two spots, it's possible that they'll get five or six feet of snow between now and the end of the weekend. And the heaviest snowfall is expected to occur around the Great Lakes area. So across parts of upstate New York, for example, near Toronto, Buffalo and downwind of Lakes Erie and Ontario. So they'll be getting a lot of snow and probably some thunder snow as well, which we occasionally get here in the UK. But it's an odd, eerie sound, isn't it, when you get thunder snow? Because obviously you've got the snow falling, you've got the cloud, and it sort of subdues the crack, the whip and the lash of that lightning. It's Have you ever heard it? Yeah, once it snowed and and there was a rumble of thunder, quite a muffled rumble. It's quite spooky when it happens. And of course, the lightning then is reflected by the snow. So it's much brighter lightning than you'd normally get. Still, I don't know whether I'd really want to be in North America under these conditions now, because, yes, there's snow. There's going to be gales, probably some freezing rain, winds lashing. And it just sounds quite horrific and very dangerous. So some of the impacts which uh, the National Weather Service are talking about, obviously impacts to do with health. So cold weather 
is just not great if you're outside for any length of time. Impacts on infrastructure, um, increased energy demand, and then the localized impacts of severe weather associated with lake effect snowfall. Yeah, and they're talking about paralyzing amounts of snow for uh, Buffalo, for Watertown, for the metro areas to get several feet of level snow. This is not drifting snow, level snow that would have a paralyzing impact on those cities. Mm, and as tall as me, well, I'm five foot one, so the lower level of five to six feet. Um, Let's talk about lake effect. The topography of this area determines in some respects how much snow they're actually going to get. So as you said, the bigger picture, this air is coming in from the north. It's an icy blast. And then it blows over the lakes and there's swathes of lakes across this region. What happens? Well, it's because this snow event is occurring so early in the season that makes it so potent. And that's because the Great Lakes at the moment are at around 10 to 12 Celsius. So they're still relatively warm. They haven't cooled down yet. You know, later in the season, they will have cooled down much more. They might even be frozen. But it's that warmth and that energy in the lakes that means that when this freezing air, these strong winds from the northwest pass over the lakes, well, the energy and the warmth and the evaporation from the lakes fuels these great big shower clouds and thunderstorms. And of course, that then falls as snow. So you've got all this convection, of the difference between the warmth at the bottom and the cold air above it, leading to rising air currents, evaporation and heavy snowfall. And these showers will become aligned to do the wind. So they'll form in bands, which will mean that some areas could get shower after shower after shower for several days. And they're expecting snowfall rates of two inches an hour in some places and that could lead to two three feet of snow in total perhaps even as much as five or six feet my goodness that just sounds quite scary really and it's an early onset of winter across this whole region when I say this region we were talking about the cold wave across the US and Canada in our meeting this morning our editorial meeting and we have a map of the whole of the world and sectioned off for areas which we're most concerned about and our global guidance unit are suggesting that this area is absolutely huge covering I'm going to say over half of the US if not more and some of Canada so it's impacting millions of people it's affecting millions of people and bringing misery to many as well as they're trying to get on with their lives trying to get to work get to school etc but for some there's a plus point I was looking at a few websites earlier, Aidan, and the forecast as far south as Utah is for blowing snow and gusty winds. Not good for drivers, but great news for skiers. And they're expecting some of the heaviest snow today. So let's just put it in perspective here. Utah, first of all, where is it? Let's give an equivalent relative to, say, Europe so we can understand how much solar radiation there is, how much warmth perhaps there is potentially in the atmosphere. And then talk about the topography as well, because obviously that has an underlying effect on where it snows. So, Aidan, give me some facts about Utah. Well, a lot of people might be surprised when you compare a map of Europe with the US and the equivalent latitudes. A lot of the US is much further south than you'd expect. So Salt Lake City in Utah is about on a par of Barcelona. So you, you'd think it would be quite hot, but and it is in the summer. 
But in the winter, it gets really quite cold because it's also high up and it's very continental, of course. It's right in the middle of the continent. It's north of Arizona. It's just next to California uh, with Nevada in between it and California. And it's mountainous, so it gets really quite cold. They've got some great skiing there. They've got some big mountains, the Rockies, of course, and uh, the Salt Lake City itself is located in the Wasatch Mountains on the western edge of the Rockies. So it's got these great altitudes and it's got these ski resorts that have, as you say, got off to a bumper start this season. Yes, I love the headline. They say, we're firing up some of the lifts today. That's the 16th of November. It's the earliest resort opening in more than 25 years. So a few celebrating this really quite nasty storm covering over half of the US um, and and bringing some snow as far south as Utah and even perhaps even further south than that. So that's the US. It's um, an ongoing story there. Obviously, we'll keep you posted here. Our Global Guidance Unit keep us updated every day. And if it continues into next week, obviously, we'll be talking about it on WeatherSnap. However, conditions are suggesting that it will ease into the weekend. So let's see what happens next. Let's talk about Europe just for a moment, because obviously they're waiting for their ski season to start The highest ski resort um, across Europe is the Matterhorn. I don't know whether you've ever been there. That's in Switzerland. And that has an elevation of 3,899 metres, so much higher than Utah. But it's been really mild across Europe, hasn't it? I mean, temperatures have been well above average through the beginning of November. Yeah, I mean, October was warmest on record for Europe, according to Copernicus. And that warmth has continued into the start of November, although temperatures are now climbing back towards average for northwestern Europe. But really disappointing start for even the very highest ski resorts. They're still waiting to start their season and there's no sign of sufficient snow at the moment for that to begin. Yes, the uh, some of the ski headlines this week, well, we've just spoken about Utah. Val Thuren, which is the French ski resort, which sits at an altitude of 2,300 metres, has said it's delaying its opening for 2022 due to inadequate snow. So, yes, um, some of those early skiers who really want to get going on the winter sports, um, disappointed with those results not being open yet. But obviously, it's still early days. We're only in mid-November. So that's snow and ice across northern hemisphere. But let's head south now to Egypt and some warmer climbs where the climate event, COP27, is still underway. Now, according to the United Nations, 800 million people globally are battling with hunger on a daily basis due to poverty, conflict or climate change. For that reason, this year's COP features a food and agriculture pavilion. And one of the speakers there is Met Office scientist Pete Falloon. Earlier, he explained to me the aims and importance of the new collaboration area. It's the opportunity to bring together lots of different parts of society. It's really clear that issues around climate change aren't just for climate scientists or policy makers. We also need to bring in businesses, youth groups, charities and so on, all parts of communities to work together towards climate solutions. How does climate science support resilience for farmers, food security across the world? Hopefully in a number of ways, and that's really exactly what we're trying to drill down into with the side events that I'm involved in. Essentially, we're bringing together 
folks from the global north and the global south to look at the ways that climate science has been used. We tend to think that climate change maybe is, is more of an issue for food security in Africa. We certainly know that it will put millions more people at risk in sub-Saharan Africa. That's a finding from the recent IPCC report. But actually, back at home in the UK, the Climate Change Committee in the recent Climate Change Risk Assessment noted weather and climate extremes as one of the highest risks of the UK food system. So it's also a big risk here. And that's partly because we import about half the food that we eat. So actually, international aspects of food security are, are really important in the UK. Crops and cropping systems have evolved to be well suited to the climate where they're grown. Management practices, how they manage the land will be adapted to their climate. And the same goes for pests and pathogens. In the UK, for example, cold winters tend to kill quite a lot of pests and pathogens of crops. Once we start to get warmer, wetter winters in the future, average climate changes into the future. So, uh, yes, yeah, so it's definitely also an issue in terms of pests and diseases. There's a lot of talk, obviously, around um, keeping below 1.5 degrees and also overshooting and approaching two degrees. How much more are farmers going to be impacted if we do push towards that two degree mark, which many saying we will? I think one of the key issues that does come out here is the, is the difference in the fundamental production systems in the global north and global south. We know things like heavy rainfall events, which can cause inundation and flooding of crop lands and damaged crops. We might see them happening in short bursts all coming together and then not see anything for another few decades. And of course, actually, the hotter it gets, the more likely it is that we see an increased frequency of those damaging extreme events too. My top is scientist Pete Falloon. Now we discussed in, in that conversation the importance of keeping the global mean temperature below 1.5 degrees Celsius and Alex Deacon has presented a great explainer on 1.5 and that's now live on our Met Office YouTube channel. Also, you can stay up to date with everything going on at COP27 on our climate newsletter on our Met Office website. Well, let's go back now to the chilly Northern Hemisphere. Before we talked about snow in the US and Central Europe, but Aidan, something else is happening further north across Scandinavia. Yes, yeah, so we've at the moment got this high pressure sitting over Scandinavia. It's called the Scandinavian High. It often appears in the winter and it's also known as a blocking high. So it can act as a block to weather systems coming in from the Atlantic, cloud, rain, milder air and so on. Now, sometimes that can influence our weather in the winter if it extends far enough west across the UK. It can block those weather systems and that's when we can get colder weather in the winter. But at the moment, it's just staying to the east of us. And of course, another thing that's happening that we've already spoken about is the cold weather over North America. That's helping to fire up the jet stream because of the contrast between the cold weather of North America and much warmer subtropical air coming up from near Florida. And that contrast in temperature over North America is fueling a very powerful jet stream. And it's that powerful jet stream that is just keeping the Scandinavian high to the east of us. So really, it's like a battle between an unstoppable force, the jet stream, and an immovable object, this anticyclone over Scandinavia. And the battle line lies somewhere in the North Sea at the moment. And so that means that we're subject to the jet stream, we're subject to these areas of low pressure barreling from the Atlantic, these bouts of wind and rain. But then they come up against the high pressure over Scandinavia, and they stall 
And that's why it's become so wet across the UK and eastern parts of the UK in particular. These low pressure systems are moving in. They're stalling over the North Sea and sending their areas of rain back into parts of Scotland, northern and eastern England. And today it's raining across Scotland, uh, northern and eastern England, and that rain is just relentless. It's going to continue through the rest of the week into the start of the weekend as well, with then further rain coming in from the west. However, the high pressure is having some influence on the UK's weather. That cold air to the east will filter somewhat into the UK. So as a result, temperatures are declining. We're not seeing such mild weather at the moment. And into next week, the charts are suggesting these areas of low pressure are sort of dumbbelling. They're never going very far at all. They're slow moving, like the one currently across the UK. Um, so rain is never too far away. However, it's just the distribution and the movement of these lows which determines whether you're going to get a real deluge, like we've seen in the last few days across the southeast and now eastern Scotland, northeast England, or whether some places will see something completely different. I mean, Northern Ireland over the last 24 hours has seen frost and quite dense fog, indicative of high pressure. Yeah, if you like cold, crisp, bright weather in the autumn, Northern Ireland's been the place to be this week. It's been sunny most days. They've avoided a lot of the rain or when it has rained, it's gone through overnight and they've had some frosty mornings with some fog and so on. And so they're seeing a different side to autumn. But for the rest of the UK, it's really been more of the same. Bouts of rain, bouts of wind. And that's how it's likely to continue into much of next week as well. The weather staying very unsettled. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much rain we've had this month by the end of the month. Obviously, we'll be talking to Dr. Mark McCarthy about that because we've been in deficit for so long now, certainly right the way through this year. But the rain we're getting now is this relentless high rainfall totals, which inundates an area, even Scotland, that can cope with a lot more wet weather than maybe the more southern areas. So it will be interesting to see if there has been a balance readdressed or not, whether we still need that rain. I saw on Twitter just yesterday some people saying, actually, our reservoirs are still a bit low, considering, you know, how wet it's been over the last few weeks. We need a lot more. Um, so, Aidan, that's the weather into next week, turning drier into Saturday, as you said, and then more rain on Sunday. And the other thing we need to pick up on is that band of rain coming in on Saturday night could actually produce some snow across the high ground? Yeah, nothing untoward about that for the time of year, of course, but it's not something we've really seen much of this autumn, if at all. And it's that slightly colder air that's coming in from Scandinavia, mixing with the Atlantic air that's still coming in from the west, and that could lead to some snowfall over, say, four or 500 metres, uh, the Pennines, Scottish mountains and so on. Uh, but, yeah, it's pretty standard stuff for this time of year it's just it's been so mild recently that at the moment it feels quite cold even if temperatures are just about average for the time of year i'm certainly layered up in my office this morning okay aiden thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it always good to have those insights and yes like alex deacon last week it's a five out of five from me uh, before we go let's head over to ollie clayden who is pretty much like the Met Office Ollie Murs. Would you say that, Aidan? Is he that sort of, he's that demographic? He's that, he's cool? He, yeah, he's a handsome chap. He's got a great voice. Great voice, not only for radio. And he's here now, though, with last week's highs and lows. Here are your weather extremes for Monday the 7th of November to Sunday the 13th of November. The warmest place last week was Port Maddock, Gwynedd, where it reached 21.2 degrees, making this the warmest day on record this late in the year. 
The lowest temperature was during the early hours of Monday morning in Tain Range in Ross and Cromarty, where it dipped to minus 1.3 degrees. The wettest place was Aknagar, also in Ross and Cromarty, where 109 millimetres fell on Thursday the 10th of November. And the highest daily sunshine occurred on Saturday at Jersey Airport, Channel Islands, with 8.2 hours of sunshine. Thanks, Ollie. So my thanks to Ada McGibbon and Ollie Murs and also Pete Falloon. I'll be back next week. I'm Claire Nazir and editor this week is Adrian Holloway. Weathersnap is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.